The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. Uh, okay, so over the last couple of weeks in the Gospel of Mark, we have been uh, talking just about discipleship itself, and the, the Gospel of Mark is going to uh, really reveal what it means to follow Jesus and what discipleship is actually costing. And there will be a lot of things, I think, in the gospel that are probably routine for you. You've heard these stories before, maybe. But the way that Mark tells them is going to be a little bit different um, from the other gospels. Mark is very short, for instance. It's very quick to the point. A lot of the stories are very truncated. In, in other words, they, they take just a few verses, typically, to tell the story he does. And uh, in the end, we're left with very little at the very end of the gospel that, that gives us kind of any conclusion, except that Jesus rose from the dead and he told his disciples to meet him back in Galilee. And then it was it's sort of it. It's kind of how the gospel ends. And, uh, and so it, it kind of uh, comes in really quickly with John preaching, and then John's arrested, and then now we get Jesus all within the first chapter. And, uh, and then at the end, it's Jesus is resurrected, and then that's it. You know, and so the gospel is really, really short, but its message to the disciple to consider what it means to follow Jesus is probably the most profound of any of the gospels that we have. And so last week what we looked at was that immediately following that first little section, which is the first 13 or so verses of the prologue, we see in verse 14 that John the Baptist is arrested, and Jesus comes in on the backside of John's arrest, and he begins um, preaching and teaching, and he's preaching really the same message that John the Baptist was preaching, and that is repentance and belief in the gospel. And when we see that John the Baptist is arrested, and we know that Jesus is to be arrested and to be handed over and killed, there is this sort of shadow that is cast over the ministry of Jesus as a whole and his preaching. And then that also applies to the disciple. As we're considering in this gospel what it's actually saying to the disciple of Jesus, if John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of the Messiah, is handed over and put in prison and eventually killed. If Jesus, the Messiah, is handed over and eventually killed, what does that mean for the disciple who comes preaching the same things they were preaching? You can expect the same kind of thing. So there's, there's automatically this sort of dark shadow over what it's like to be a disciple. You should not expect easy things. You should expect it to be difficult. You should expect people to respond negatively to the, the, the message that you're preaching, as happened to John the Baptist, as happened to Jesus. And Jesus will eventually say, look, if they hated me, then they're going to hate you too, right? So if you're if you're part of me. And if, if you're not, then they're going to love you. And that's kind of a, a sign that things are not so great for you. Um, so in the, the first chapter of Mark is this really uh, kind of fast-paced description of Jesus's ministry getting off the ground. And it, he gives this very kind of sort of overview of all the many different kinds of ministries that Jesus is involved in. And we see that he's teaching, that he is exercising demons, he's casting demons out, he's healing people, and he's preaching. And what we see, though, is that even though the crowds are coming out, they're attracted 
to what Jesus is doing in that he's casting demons out and he's healing all their infirmities. And that is clearly a massive part of Jesus' ministry. Obviously, people are astounded by the miracles that he's doing, and we're going to see a few of them this morning. And they're sort of blown away by this, but it, it seems, though, that the bulk of what Jesus is really here to do is not to heal and cast out demons, but to preach and teach the message of the kingdom of God coming, the need for repentance, and the understanding that it is only through Christ that you can have salvation. And he tells even the disciples, as the disciples are getting pressured by uh, people to say, well, where is Jesus? Jesus has gone off to pray. They can't find him. They don't know where he is. And the people are coming in, pressing in, going, hey, we, I got this kid who's crippled, and I got this guy who's got a demon, and all these kinds of things. And they're going to find Jesus, and Jesus says, uh, let's go on to the next city so that I can teach and preach, because that's why I came here. <laughs> so the heartbeat of his ministry is not the miracles, but is the teaching and preaching. And what we find is that so many who would follow Jesus, or who would want to follow Jesus, are really there for the stuff that he gives. But then when it comes to actually teaching and preaching, they turn a deaf ear and a blind eye and would rather walk away. One of the passages in Scripture, this is not in the Gospel of Mark, it's in the Gospel of John, that I think is the most, every time I read it, it's, there's, believe it or not, there's a lot of encouragement for the pastor (laughs) in it, (laughs) but, but, but there is also a, a really profound thing that's happening in John 5 and 6. John, uh, Jesus has, you know, d- multiplied bread for the people. He has healed people. There are thousands upon thousands of people that are now following him. And at the beginning of 6, he leaves the crowd. He goes to pray. His disciples go into a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and it's kind of storm-tossed, and it's getting a little bit hectic. They're rowing, and they're trying to get to the other side, and they can't. And Jesus all of a sudden walks on water, and he comes out to them on the, on the water, and they're, they're astounded. They're blown away. They think it's a ghost and all kinds of other things, and Peter gets out of the boat, all this. They finally, he finally gets in the boat, and they immediately make it over to the other side. They get on the other side in the wilderness, and all the people by this point have now figured out where Jesus is. He's on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So they, you know, scurry on over there. And they, thousands are now packing in in the wilderness, uh, trying to come to Jesus. And he, he says, you, you came out here and you just want bread. That's basically what you want. You want to see more miracles. And then he tells them, but you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they're like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> Time out. <laughs> what did he just say? And even the disciples are standing around, and they're like, they're looking at each other, and they're like, did he just say what I thought he said? Did he say we got to eat his, eat his flesh and drink his blood? And then John, as he's writing the gospel, makes clear, as Jesus says, anyone who looks on the Son and believes has eternal life. And that's what he means by eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And what's astounding about this passage is that by the end of it, when Jesus starts preaching, they they come out there for bread, and he tells them, I'm giving you the bread of life. This is how you have eternal life, is to look at me and believe. And when he tells them, this is how you have actual eternal life kind of bread, everybody leaves. Everybody leaves. 
They're all gone. They just disappear. Just walk off. I've, I've had enough of this. I don't want anything that he's saying. And they walk off. And Jesus is left there with his 12 disciples. And he says, he says uh, are you going to leave too? <laughs> are you going to follow him? And Peter is like, well, we think that you are the Christ and that you have the words of life. So where, where would we go? You know, you have it. And he, and he says, I chose you, and yet even one of you is a devil. So what starts off in John 5 as thousands upon thousands, more of a megachurch than you've ever seen in your life, packed around Jesus. Once the miracles wither up and dry away and you know, blow away and the teaching begins, they all disappear. And he's left with 11 people at the end of that passage. And it's phenomenal what happens when, it, when the call of discipleship is actually, is actually put on you. And you learn what it actually means to follow Jesus. When the rubber actually meets the road, that's when we find out, are you really wanting to be in the kingdom of God or are you not? And so the Gospel of Mark fleshes that out in a way that most of the other Gospels really don't. And so we're going to look at that this morning. This section that we're looking at has five controversies in it. So there's, as we go through, that's what kind of unites chapter 2 and the first little bit of chapter 3 together is that there are five controversies there and they all have this same pattern to them. That's how you can tell when a section of a Gospel begins is there's this kind of similar pattern that's sort of repeated throughout. And the pattern is Jesus does something surprising that kind of catches people off guard. The scribes or the authorities, or in one case even the people, uh, you know, challenge what Jesus has done. And then Jesus responds to the challenge in a way that silences them. When he explains to them what it really means um, to be engaged in gospel ministry and what, what it actually means to be his disciple. And so these conflicts, these controversies, these five, build to the fifth one, which is the climax where Jesus is going to turn the tables on him. He's going to not literally turn the tables over. He does that later. But he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna flip the script on them. He's going to change it on them where it kind of puts them on the wrong foot in that final conflict, and he's going to ask them a very direct question, and then he's going to be angry when they don't answer the question. He's been answering their questions, and they have not answered his questions, and the way that they're going to respond, again, Mark is very quick, already in chapter 3, plot to kill him. So we don't spend, Mark doesn't spend any time building the story up and telling you who Jesus is. It's just immediately into the, the thick of it. By the time we get well into chapter 3, they are already plotting to kill him. In this first controversy, Jesus is back in Capernaum. And the crowds, again, are packing around him. They're, they're traveling after him. They're trying to find him uh, because of the many miracles that he does. And he, they find him in this house. And they're assembled around this house, and the house is so packed, which, that doesn't take tons in this day and age. This is not, uh, these are not mansions, really. But uh, there's some decent-sized houses, too. Maybe it's when one of those bigger houses, who knows. But the point is, the house is filled to the brim. It's overflowing, spilling out into the, into the street around the, the house. And there's four men who are carrying their paralyzed 
friend, this paralyzed man, and they can't obviously get into the house through the door, so they decide to climb on the roof. And so we're going to read what happens here in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. When he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Remember, Jesus does something shocking. Okay? Some of the scribes are sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The scribes respond. Again, the same pattern develops. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. All right. So the men come in, they dig a hole in the roof, which is sort of like a thatched roof. It's, you know, lots of different layers of timber and different kinds of branches and things like that. So they peel, they unroof the house, and they lower their friend down in. And Jesus, when he sees this man, looks beyond the obvious need that he is a paralytic and has come for healing. And uh, he tells the man his sins are forgiven. Now, this is meant to you, the reader, as one proof that Jesus is offering that He is the Son of God. First of all, He has knowledge of this man's sin. And second, He forgives this man's sin. Both are, if they're not proofs, they're at least claims. That's what I really mean by proofs. They're claims that Jesus is the Son of God. He's putting that claim on everybody there in the house and the ones that are listening in the window and in the doorways and things like that. And so he's presenting that he is really God. He is who he says he is. But notice that there is a group of scribes there that are... Do you notice what position they're in? Look in verse 6. What position are they in? They were sitting there. What is the house like? How many people are in the house? It's filled to the brim. Where are the scribes? They're sitting. How'd they get his... They got front row seats. How'd they get front row seats? Well, if you're a scribe in that area, in that era, you walk in and they say, oh, the scribes are here. Mm, get out of the way. Here, you can have my seat. Pregnant woman gets up out of her, out of her chair, moves aside for the scribes, right? This is, uh, the scribes take the, the seats of honor. Uh, you can kind of see this where there will be a criticism uh, that Jesus levies against them 
uh, for the, the way that they you know, carry about wanting the, the seats of honor and things like that. Well, here you've got it. They're sitting in places of honor. They take this posture in the house as a tribunal. They're there to measure the success or the failure. They're there to see the authenticity of this ministry and put their stamp of approval on it as if they are the judges of the judge. The irony that's present here in this scene. And so he, Jesus says to him, no doubt in my mind, Jesus wants this conversation to happen, right? There's not a, there's not a doubt in my mind. So Jesus looks at this guy and says, your sins are forgiven. And then sort of, I, I can imagine, turns to the scribes and goes, what do you think about that? Huh? <laughs> and in their hearts, they are working up the charges that they wanted to levy against him from the beginning, which is that he is being blasphemous. And of course, they know that obviously if somebody claimed to be able to forgive sins, as they say here, who can forgive sins but God alone there at the end of verse 7, since they know, they know what blasphemy is, they rightly understand the charge of blasphemy. What is the thing that they miss? What is it that they're missing? Softball. Here we go. Jesus is God. <laughs> That's the thing that changes the game, right? It is blasphemy to say you can forgive sins because only God alone can forgive sins. And what you are blind to see, scribe and Pharisee, or you have not considered yet, is that the person standing in front of you is God. That would change the charge of blasphemy. So, Jesus then provides two more compelling proofs of his deity. The first is that he knows their hearts. Now, how disturbing would that be for you to be sitting there thinking, this guy is, has just committed blasphemy. Only God alone can forgive sins. And what if he turned to you and said, why do you think that in your heart? <laughs> Caught, right? Red-handed. Uh, and then I might, you might consider, okay, well, maybe this guy really is. But then, if that's not enough, that he knows what's going on in your heart, then he turns to the paralyzed man and tells him, rise, take up your mat and walk. And the guy gets up and walks away. Well, you would think, what more evidence do you need? Go back to last week, and we, what I mentioned then was, it, it's... It's often tempting, I think, in my own mind, my own heart, to say, man, what I wouldn't give to be back then and to see, witness the miracles for myself and to be a witness to the resurrection. And, you know, there's always that question that we ask around the dinner table sometimes or the kids ask, you know, like, if you could go back to any time period, when would you go back to? And who, who hasn't wanted to go back to the time of Jesus and say, I, some, somewhere around 33 AD, and I'd love to see, you know, the resurrection or the, you know, Jesus's ministry and things like that? Of course, of course we would. But what's evident here is that Jesus turns to scribes and Pharisees and knows their hearts and tells them what they're thinking, and then turns to the man and says, which is easier, <laughs> to say your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your mat and walk? And here the guy gets up and walks. You'd think, what further evidence do I need? And yet they're still not convinced that he's the Messiah. So we get to the end of this section and we go to the next one. Jesus calls a tax collector named Levi 
to be his disciple. And after he calls Levi, or Matthew, to be his disciple, he then goes to Matthew's house. Obviously, Matthew is excited to be his disciple. There's friends of Matthew's that I'm assuming are friends of his that are also tax collectors. And he's thrown a party at his house. And so Jesus is there in Matthew's house with many tax collectors. And the scribes are looking on at Jesus' party as a scandalous event. And what it is, is they're really trying to draw dividing lines around this guy's ministry, around Jesus' ministry, determining who's in and who's out. And they're basing it on what they understand of Jewish law. So based on our society, when the Messiah comes, the people who are in will also be the insiders in our society, and the people who are out will also be the outsiders in our society. He's going to fit right in with the rest of us. And that's obviously not what we're seeing here with Jesus. So let's look at 2, 13 to 17. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for they were, there were many who followed him. And the scribes and of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, here's the challenge, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, here's his response. He said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So, obviously, the, the understanding of what a tax collector is probably is a well-worn path, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk it again, if you don't mind. Um, the Romans had basically gave the area of Judea, that whole region, the land of Israel, the promised land, whatever, however you want to think about it, they, they gave that land essentially some oversight, but they didn't send their own soldiers to maintain it. They just wanted to make sure that it was, it was kept peaceful. So they put some of their leading men uh, in charge of that area, and as long as the peace was maintained there, then Rome wouldn't come in with an overly heavy hand to squash it. The only thing they required was one, or two things. One, peace in the land. Two, tax money. As long as you're keeping the tax money flowing, and as long as there's no uprisings there, we have no need to really pay much attention to it. Y'all can practice whatever religion you want and things like that. So there was generally a lot of freedom there. And you can sense this as you get closer to the end of some of the Gospels where the Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees get together and they're, like, they're, they're seriously plotting to kill Jesus. And one of the reasons they do is because he raises Lazarus from the dead. This is the end of John. And, and they, he, he raises Lazarus from the dead and they're like, hey, if this man that was dead for four days, is walking around the land. And you got this guy over here who raised him from the dead. Eventually, there's going to be such a commotion about this guy to try to make him king that the Romans are going to come in and they're going to kill us all. So we got to do something about this. So they plot to kill Lazarus and they plot to kill Jesus. So you can sense that that's kind of, that's kind of growing because the unrest that would then happen in the region. So Rome didn't care too much about what was going on as long as 
you collected the taxes and you kept the peace. And so the way that they collected the taxes was they took some Jewish people and they said, hey, we'll pay you a handsome wage if you can collect taxes from your brothers. The people that then turned to say, I'll take that deal and collect the taxes for their brothers were traitors. So as a result in society, tax collectors were considered thieves and murderers. They're lumped in with the whole lot of them. You might as well be a tax collector or a thief or a murderer. They're all the same thing. They're not allowed to be witnesses in court because you couldn't trust them. They were sketchy. Think of Zacchaeus who had robbed a bunch of people and charged them way more in taxes than... than. That's the other part of the tax collecting business is not only did they betray their brothers by collecting taxes for the enemy, Rome, but they often cheated the Jews to gain more tax money. And so they were lumped in with all of them. They were expelled from synagogues. They were seen as a disgrace to their family. And so, but the, the thing that I, I want you to notice about this passage and is particularly pertinent for our culture right now as they look at passages like this, Jesus eating with sinners and tax collectors, and they think, oh, he gets us, right? Like he's, here, here is, he's eating with sinners and tax collectors, and that's, that's what Jesus did. He came in, he's like, where are the worst people in society that I could possibly be part of? And goes and sits down at their table and is like, I didn't come for nothing. I just want to tell you that I love you and I have a wonderful plan for your life. And then walk out the door. That's, that's not what's happening here, okay? Remember, Jesus' mission is to preach and teach repentance for salvation, Right? Well, I want you to notice something really particular about this. This feast is a celebration of salvation. First of all, for Matthew, who knows, who has heard the call of discipleship from Jesus, Jesus said, come follow me, and he did. But then also that the party goers, the other tax collectors who are there, are not merely there because they're friends of Matthew. They're there because they're followers of Jesus. Look at what it says in verse 15. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. We're going to find out later what does it mean to follow him. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow him. There's daily repentance, there is pursuit of Christ, there's denying of self that's required there. This is not a he gets us campaign. This is a this is a I'm a sinner, I get him campaign, right? I want him. And that's what they're coming for. This is a, a celebration of salvation. And so the scribes are looking on to this this, you know, party that's going on and they're going I, I cannot believe this man is partying with outsiders. He's coming in and eating with sinners and tax collectors. And so they begin to argue about these sinners and tax collectors that they're morally unclean and they are therefore outside Jewish law and outside any ministry of anybody that would claim to be the Messiah. If somebody is the Messiah, then he's going to respect Jewish laws and traditions and we have labeled these as outsiders and so he should too. But Jesus says that he is the spiritual doctor. And the ones who know they need forgiveness are the ones that He came to save. The ones that make up His following. 
In other words, the crowd who is actually inside the kingdom are the ones who know they need forgiveness. I didn't come to call the righteous, but the unrighteous. The ones who know that they need forgiveness. Now, these first two episodes are kind of tied together by one consistent theme, and that is that Jesus has the divine authority to forgive sin. All of mankind, even the self-righteous scribes and Pharisees, are in a position where they need forgiveness of sin. Jesus is not saying, you guys are righteous, you don't need me. I'm going over here to the unrighteous, you'll be fine. No, no, no. He's saying, I, I came for the spiritually sick, and the implication to them is, you're spiritually sick and you don't even know it. Everybody is spiritually sick. Everybody needs Christ. And so he came to them, and he, he's, he alone has the authority to forgive sin. Everyone who needs a cure for sin has one Savior in Christ. So in other words, everyone who, who needs the forgiveness of Jesus uh, comes to him because he alone has the authority to extend forgiveness. So obviously, the problem with the scribes and Pharisees is as they're looking at Jesus, they don't understand who he actually is. Nor do they believe who he actually is, which is going to lead to where they're, they're going in a minute. There's a third controversy that pops up in the next passage. And the story follows the same framework of Jesus doing something that causes people to, you know, take a, take a bat, be, a, uh, you know, be shocked, I guess. And then they, there's the challenge that comes from people, or from the scribes, in this case the people. And then there's the, the answer. And in this case, the challenge comes from the people, not from the scribes. They notice that there is this apparent inconsistency in the way Jesus and his disciples go about practicing religion, their faith. In other words, everybody else in Judaism fasts occasionally. But we've noticed, Jesus, your disciples, they don't fast. They don't abstain from food every so often. Look at Mark 2, 18-22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. All right, so typically the days of fasting, there was really only one prescribed in the Old Testament, and that was the Day of Atonement. And we can, you can see that in Leviticus 16, 29, and 31. I won't go back and read those, but um, they, that was the one that was prescribed. And then later in the time of the prophets and things like that, some more fasts kind of began to spring up. And we see these particularly in Zechariah. 
um, where in, when the prophets came along, there's some traditional fasts that were picked up by the Jews. But mostly, the Jewish people look back at their history, and when, they came to, when it came time to remember certain historical events that were cause for mourning, it would also be cause for fasting. So you would look back at, what, in this case, the Day of Atonement, the day of, here's where I come to reckon all my sin and confess it before the Lord, or other times of celebration throughout, uh, you know, exile to Babylon and things like that, they would begin uh, kind of fasting over the morning of what has taken place. And then the Pharisees would also fast two times a week, typically on Monday and on Thursday. So when it comes to the question of why do you not fast, and yet John's disciples fast, and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, Jesus responds in a really peculiar way. He says uh, that when a wedding happens, that is not a time to fast. No one goes to a wedding and says, boy, I hope we don't eat there, right? I mean, even my kids get it. Like, they're like, wedding? Cake? <laughs> Are we staying for cake? How much cake will we get? How many pieces will you let us have? You know, uh, there's a groom's cake now, too? You get two pieces of cake, right? Uh, a wedding is not a time for fasting, but a time for feasting. And the reason that it's not fitting uh, to, to fast for Jesus' disciples is that Jesus is here as the groom. This is a time of celebration, not a time of mourning. If your fasting times are looking back at you know, tragedies that have taken place or times of mourning, then all of those things are wiped away because the bridegroom is here. Salvation has come. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now is the time for feasting because of celebration, because the Messiah has actually come. Now, he gives two more pictures to kind of illustrate this, and they're very similar. The first is patching a garment. You see that there in verse 21. And the second is putting wine into wineskins. In both pictures, they contain this contrast between the old and new. And the warning that Jesus is giving is that the two don't mix well. You don't take a new patch and put it on uh, an old garment you don't uh, unless you shrink the patch first and then you put it on the garment. You don't put uh, new wine into old wineskins or you'll end up ruining the wine because the wineskin will burst. And what he's saying in all three of these things is that your understanding of fasting needs to be recalibrated under the new covenant. What I'm bringing in, Jesus is saying, is something entirely new. What you are doing with fasting is looking back at the Old Testament and you're mourning over the things that happened there. And I'm telling you that because the Messiah is here, first of all, it's a time of feasting. But when will the disciples begin fasting again? When does he say the disciples will begin fasting? What is it? I can't hear you. Yeah, when he leaves. When he takes off. When Jesus is, when the bridegroom is gone, then his disciples will begin fasting again. What will they begin fasting over? Are they mourning over the day of exile in the Old Testament? Are they mourning for the day of atonement? Are they mourning for the things that the Old Testament and the Old Covenant is calling for? No. They're mourning because the bridegroom is gone. Our fasts under the new covenant 
take on a whole different meaning, and they're all reinterpreted according to Jesus. Everything now in our lives as Christians is now centered on Christ rather than the Old Covenant. And that's the point Jesus is making. You can't take the old traditions that you're used to now that I'm here and apply them to this new age. What we're doing is something entirely new. Now your your fasting is because you want Jesus to return. You're fasting over and mourning over the state of affairs of the world around you and you long for Christ's kingdom to come into the full. That's the reason we fast. Just like the wine in the wineskins. So it all needs to be recalibrated. Now there's a fourth controversy. Jesus is going through the grain fields on the Sabbath and His disciples begin to pluck these heads of grain uh, in order to eat them. If you'll look with me there at um, Mark 2, 23-28. It says, On this one Sabbath, He was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, His disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to Him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So Jesus does something shocking. Here's the rebuttal. And here's the response. He said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? He said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Um, so if we go back into the Old Testament law, the Old Testament law actually makes provision for those who are hungry. It says in Deuteronomy 23:25, if you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. Okay, so this command that was given in the Old Testament law was essentially what we see in the book of Ruth. If you remember, um, there's gleaners, people that are poor, that come along in the, uh, the fields, and this is grain that is intentionally left for the poor. So people would harvest their field. Now, the, you weren't allowed to take a sickle and start taking off acres, peeling off acres of your neighbor's land, all right? That's not what this is for. We're talking you're hungry, you're poor, you're walking along, and your neighbor is to leave grain on the stock in case you're hungry, you can take food. And so there's provision made in the law for people to enjoy, and God has provided this for them. Now, but this then kind of comes into contrast as Jesus and his disciples are walking along, they, they pluck the heads of grain, they shift it in their hand, they kind of shuck the wheat or whatever it is, and then they, they eat the grains that are on the stalk. This runs against the traditions of the Pharisees who say that it's not, that though it was lawful to eat heads of grain, it's not lawful to pluck heads of grain because that would count as threshing. So there's the need, if, let's think about this for just a second. Now, I'm going to just, for just this long, I'm going to defend the Pharisees, okay? I know this is not a popular position, and I don't want to be left here for too long, okay? But, because uh, we know how it ends. But uh, 
if you're thinking from a, from a perspective of a religious leader in the community, one of the reasons that the Jews were exiled was for idolatry, ignorance of the law. They pushed the law aside and they sought to corrupt it by all kinds of other means, worship other gods, reject the law of God altogether. So if you're the Pharisees, you're the religious leaders, there might be something in you that might say, we got to get serious, all right? Or we're going to end up back in Babylon again. All right, we need, to get, we need to get real serious about following the law. And if we ever want the Messiah to come and set up his kingdom here, he needs to find people who are faithful to the law. And one of the things that we got in trouble for all the way back to coming out of Egypt was, uh, you know, he would leave this manna on the ground and he would leave enough on Friday for you to gather for both Friday and for Saturday, for the Sabbath. But then there were some people that were like, nobody's looking. Let's go out there on the Sabbath and let's try to collect as much as we possibly can so that we don't run out. And God said, no, it's going to spoil. So it, it got spoiled, right? One of the things that they got in trouble for for so many years was rejecting the Sabbath. Even when it came time for harvest, you were supposed to every seven years give a Sabbath rest to your, to your field so that you actually let it rest too. And they didn't do that. Then every 49 years, every seven sevens, you're supposed to let the whole thing rest. The year of Jubilee, give back to everybody, let the slaves go free, do all those kinds of things. It was a Sabbath there too. And they never did that either. So one of the things that we got in trouble for was not adhering to the Sabbath. So we need some strictness when it comes to our Sabbath obedience. Well, it says here in the text that hey, you, can, you can eat the grain, but you can't really harvest it. Well, what's considered harvesting? We need, some, we need some rules to come up with so we know when we're getting close to harvesting because the last thing we want to do is reject the Sabbath and end up back in Babylon again. So here the Jews are walking along, the scribes and Pharisees are walking along, and they're seeing Jesus and his disciples pluck the heads of grain, and they're going, hey, wait a minute. You're not only doing this, but people are looking up to you, and you're a teacher, and now you're leading them to the very thing that caused us to go to Babylon to begin with. See the train of logic? That's the limit of my defense of the scribes and Pharisees. You can at least see what they're saying. The problem is the Bible. All right, <laughs> that's the biggest problem. And it always is the problem with people that want to disobey or people that don't know what it says. So Jesus is seeking to educate them. First of all, he reminds them of what the Bible says there in verses 25 and 26 by taking them back to David, who is on the run. He's on the lamb, and he's got his men with him. And he comes up to Abiathar, and he goes, Hey, we're hungry. We need some food. And it's not lawful to eat the showbread in the temple, but... What does Abiathar do? He looks at David and he goes, yeah, I mean, we're going to make an exception here. Why? Because kindness, generosity, I don't want people to starve. That seems to take precedent in this case, and it's certainly the case there with David. Um, second, he educates them on the Sabbath itself. The Sabbath was not made for you to serve. It was given to serve you, to give you rest, to give you a time period where you don't have to worry. 
every other society around you works seven days a week because they are terrified that they won't have enough for the next day. You are the only people in this entire world who are supposed to just take off work on Saturday, not do any work. Why? So that you can see and you can be assured that God is going to provide for you. So the Jews have, every time they take a Sabbath on a Saturday, they get to Sunday and they realize, I still have plenty. I still have enough. Here the nations are working their hands to the bone every single day of the week, and you take off one day and you're still more prosperous than the rest of the nations. How can you not see that God is the one that is providing for you? Right? It's a blessing to you. That's what it's meant to be. You're not serving it. It's serving you. And then finally, he educates them on who he actually is. The Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. This is the problem that they fail to recognize that we saw all the way back in the very first controversy. The problem is that they don't see him as the Messiah, and that's the reason they're bringing all these charges against him. All right. So these two episodes are also linked as well because they deal with, obviously, the antagonism by the Pharisees, the scribes and Pharisees, directed toward the changed lifestyles of those who follow Jesus. His disciples are different. They do different things. They follow the new covenant, and we think that's wrong. So their ways of life for the disciples have been changed to new ways, and what happens is, because those ways of life have been changed, there is kind of this condemnation toward the old way. Do you see that? There's kind of, the Pharisees feel a little slighted. What are you saying about me and the way that I used to live? Are you saying that it's wrong? So it's a challenge. Well, then we come to this final scene. I'm going to go through these relatively quickly as we get to the end here. This final scene is really the climax of the five conflicts, and it takes on a little different uh, beat. So this time Jesus is the one bringing the challenge to the religious leaders before they can really ever challenge him. Look at Mark chapter 3, 1 to 6, is on page 6. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. Now, that's a softball question. All right? Which is better on the Sabbath? Silence. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out, and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. So he poses this piercing question whether or not it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And this question gets to the heart of what the law actually is. The law is the expression of doing good and condemning evil. 
So it's hard to imagine the law ever condemning doing good. Here's a man with a withered hand. Had this probably his whole life. And he walks up to Jesus and Jesus says, what do you think? You think the law is going to condemn me if this man's hand is restored? And they refuse to answer. They cannot understand what the law actually is doing, that it actually is for the good of people. And so, this question that Jesus poses to them is not hard to answer unless the listener's hearts are hard. Here is God incarnate standing before them, calling upon them to choose life and choose what is good, and their response is silence followed by a plot to kill him. So Jesus looks at them with anger. In their hardness of heart, the experts in the law have totally missed the law and are looking for ways to accuse the lawgiver. In doing good and saving life, Jesus is embodying the law and the heart of God in his own person. Now, in this, this, the final episode here concludes the passage teaching the disciple how to respond to negative reactions to their ministry. So here is Jesus getting pushback on who he is as a minister of the gospel. And the disciples are one that need to pay attention. How does Jesus respond? First is with grief. This is often missed, I think, in ministry as we see attacks against us uh, or hear of attacks against us or whispers or things like this that you will typically feel if you're doing ministry of any kind of significance. You'll hear those kinds of attacks. And typically the first response is anger. It's not that anger isn't there. Anger is clearly there. But sometimes we skip right over grief. Actually looking at the people and being sad. Because they're blind. Cannot see what ministry actually is. What it means to actually love people. And that blindness is sad because there's nothing you can do to open their eyes. As hard as you try, there's nothing you can do except just continue to say the same things over and over and over again and pray that the Lord opens their eyes. It's sad. But then he follows that, that grief, notice, it does not lead to him going, well, I'll I'll find something else to do. It doesn't. He responds with firmness, with resoluteness, not letting the opposition daunt him or her, disciple of Jesus. It's one thing to be grieved over the sin of others. It's another thing to let their sin dictate what gospel ministry actually looks like. Standing firm in the midst of that, believe it or not, is really hard. So these episodes lay before us 
different aspects of opposition that disciples are likely to face. Namely, that the journey of discipleship is not going to be easy. Jesus is facing opposition on every side. The disciple should expect to face opposition on every side. This is going to give a little bit of color to the notion that if the world loves you, you should ask questions about yourself. Right? Because if you're doing ministry, and if you're telling people that they're lost in sin and that they need a Savior, it turns out people don't like to hear that. I know that's shocking because you're here, hopefully, because you know you need a Savior. Because you know you're a sinner. And so you can't imagine that there are people out there who sin just like you and me and pretend that they don't need a Savior. And when they're told about it, why wouldn't they come running to Christ? But here we find a group of people who not only push back against the Messiah, who is there healing people, Healing a guy with a withered hand. There's no question. Have you seen a person with a withered hand where it's, where it's crippled? It's, it's obvious. You can tell. This is not like a person lying on a mat. Maybe a person lying on a mat is pretending they're faking, like at a Benny Hinn rally or something like that. This guy has a withered hand. It's very obvious. And then all of a sudden he stretches it out and it's made well. There's no question here what's happened. And the response is, let's get him. Opposition awaits. It's not going to be easy. James. Yes, I'm using back to your caller thing. I, and I basically said, I'm the one fighting everybody. The one that doesn't fight with it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the ones that are healed are not often plotting to kill him. No, that's it. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's astounding what we're, what we're finding, but we're going to see more of it. Uh, so let's pray, and then let's uh, go into the worship service. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word and for the word of warning that exists there, uh, that we, as disciples, should expect pushback. We should expect temptation and trial. We should expect not everyone's going to love us. So, Father, we pray that you would only give us the boldness to do what is necessary in ministry, to persevere, to continue in a course of action, of seeing people come to know Christ without giving thought to the way that people are going to receive it, but instead continuing to do what you've called us to do. But I also pray that we would have grief, sadness, and sorrow, even as we rejoice in ministry. Sorrow for those that are blind, knowing that it is Satan who has blinded them. It is their own flesh that has blinded them. And pray that one day their eyes will be opened and that they will see. So, Father, we pray for that kind of boldness. We don't want callousness. We don't want ignorance. 
We don't want to stomp on people either. But we do want to persevere. And we don't want to be intimidated. So I pray that we would pursue a course of discipleship as Jesus taught us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.